going through kids' ministry, I loved it. I was um, a pastor's kid, you probably already know that, but um, every now and again, every two weeks, we used to go shopping, and this was a highlight. I'm one of seven kids, so money wasn't a, a luxury that we had as a family. But we lived in a town called Elphinstone. Who knows what Elphinstone is? What? The hands that put up, you're probably more than the population of Elphinstone, just so you know. If you don't know, Elphinstone is 13.2 kilometres. I worked this out because I had a lot of time on my hands. 13.2 kilometres away from, from Castlemaine. And Castlemaine is, you know, close to Bendigo. So Bendigo is about 40 k's away. And every now and again, we would go to Bendigo. The big smoke, for us anyway. It was cool. And my parents used to give us $5 each. They'd spend whatever you want. Spend it on whatever you like. But the first thing we had to do was, was go to Word Bookstore. And you might think, oh yeah, cool, Word Bookstore, I want to get that latest CD or that latest book. For me, as a pastor's kid, that wasn't fun. Because while all my friends were getting VeggieTales and Davy and Goliath, do we remember Davy and Goliath? Yeah, I loved it, I still do. Youth, you won't like it, I can guarantee it. But my parents used to always get us books to read. Say, so here you go, Luke, you got five bucks, this book is good for you. I'm like, oh, what is this? Walter Martin, what? You know, Walter Martin, there was Charles Stanley, Billy Graham. We used to listen to sermons in the car. It wasn't, you know, the Wiggles like it is nowadays, or it wasn't, you know, Colin Buchanan. It was, listen to this latest sermon. So that or Keith Green, which was both pretty cool. But my parents got a set of VHS tapes. Youth, do we know what VHS is? Yeah, it's, don't worry, I'm not going to explain it. I don't, I don't want to try, but VHS. And it was a series called A Thief in the Night series. It's up on the screen now. Should be on the screen. There we go. Uh, next one, please. Yes, who has seen these? <laughs> okay, if you don't know the premise, basically uh, it, it has the, uh, the, the pre-millennial tribulation, the rapture. So a girl misses the rapture and she doesn't go to heaven for seven years, and she gets persecuted, and she, she gets murdered. Sorry for the spoiler alert, but she gets killed. And as a 10-year-old watching this stuff, it's terrifying. I'm not going to tell you how the murders happen, because it's really, really gruesome. But basically, it goes on the premise that people get left behind when the rapture happens, when Jesus comes back for his church in the end times. If you believe in him, if you've given your life to him, you will go and meet Jesus in the clouds. If not, you've missed the rapture and you have to go through the seven years of tribulation where everyone wants to kill you. And again, 10 years old, it was hard. And this made me think, what are the end times all about? It's got to be more than this. The end times are about, is about Jesus coming back. That's basically what it means. Jesus returning and creating a new heaven and a new earth to make things right again, where all sin will be wiped away. And as a kid, learning this stuff, I looked around and I saw the injustice of the world. Just look around. Turn on the news. Count how many stories it takes until you get to a good news story. It's either about North Korea, it's about someone killing someone else, it's about murder, it's about all this stuff, and then maybe nine stories in, you'll get a story about a fluffy kitten. But I would go as far as say that this stuff up, up, up on the screen, this scared me to the point where that was the foundation of my faith. 
I said, I want to be a follower of Jesus because I don't want to miss the rapture. I don't want to go through all that stuff. And you know what? To me, that was unhealthy for a long time because Jesus told us when the end would come. He, would say that, he said that it would be in the end of age or the end of times. But how do we, as followers of Christ, if you're in that boat, how do we decipher when the end of times are? Why is it important? Because it has huge implications for the church. Not just this church, but the church worldwide. So before we kick off this series, I want to pray together. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we kick off this new series, Lord, this um, minefield, Father, there are different ideas and different ideals about what the end times are. Father, we pray that these don't really scare us into the, into the kingdom, Lord, but they draw us closer to you so that we can look up and see that when these signs are occurring, we can see you working through everything. Father, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what you want to share with us over the next three weeks. Amen. Now, being an uh, ex-Bible college, Bible college student, the uh, study of the end times is called eschatology. And... Again, I'm also uh, half Greek, so eschatology broken up comes from uh, eschatos, which means end, and ology, which means study of, so study of the end times. And you might think, oh, end times, revelation, bang. But the word of God talks about the end times throughout the Bible. Daniel, Joel, Amos, Ezekiel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians. And Revelation all talk about this one event, and that is Jesus coming back for his church and to create a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm going to show you just some of the, uh, the different ideas about the end times, what, what people believe. I'm not going to explain every one of them because we'll be here until you know, 4 p.m., until night church, so you can just roll over if you like. So eschatology. So the first one is pre-tribulational premillennialism. Who knows, who knows what that is? Yeah, okay, cool. No one. Post-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism, post-millennialism, amillennialism, pan-millennialism, eschatolog- eschatological idealism, partial preterism, full preterism, dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, and there are heaps more. Each one has the ism suffix at the end. I can always guarantee it. And you think, how am I supposed to know what to believe with this? And you're like, the church doesn't always talk about this stuff because these are varying degrees. And it's hard. You say, you know what, the end times will happen. That's why I love pan-millennialism. That just basically means, who cares? It's all going to pan out in the end anyway. That's, what, that's the basic gist of what pan-millennialism is. And if that's you, Great. You can focus on this stuff here, or you can focus on the the realistic possibility that Jesus is coming back. And there are Christian authors, such as John Hagee and Tim LaHaye, who who recently passed away, Ken Klein, who have devoted their lives to study of the end times. So what's the true approach? So next week, we'll be looking at the signs of the times. And there are heaps of them through the Bible. Jesus says, 
These things will happen in the end times. Keep an eye out because that's when it's happening. And we can sometimes miss those things. Oh, that's just always happened. Who cares? Oh, yeah, rumors of war. Yeah, that's been happening for years. I believe the end times started as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven when he said, I will be back. Not like the Terminator, but he said, I will be back. I'm coming back to make things right. Now, how powerful is that? You see, the disciples at the time were like, oh, well, Jesus is he's gone to heaven. Let's wait for him. They could have waited there and waited because he said, I'll be back. But they kept on going ahead with their mission. Preparing this message, there are four truths about the end times that are going to really set the scene for this series. The first truth is that, one, we are living in the end times. Again, I ask the question, when did the end times begin? It's a question of semantics. It's a question of theological awareness. Some believe that the end times, or Jesus came back in a certain year. Some believe it was the year 2000. Isaac Newton said that Jesus would come back in the year 2000. Others thought it was when Israel was re-established as a nation after Second World War in the 1940s. Others believe that it was when the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. This is what the preterists believe, as we saw before. For me, it's hard to put a time on it. People time and time again have predicted it and it hasn't come true. There's been over 50 Notable, and I mean notable, like published, where these people, these theologians, have put everything on the line to say, Jesus is coming back on this date, and it never happened. But there are thousands of others. One particular sect of Christianity has incorrectly declared the return of Jesus over a hundred times. And they're still existing. But with all these failed predictions, how are we to know when it's going to happen? I'll tell you what, if you don't know, you're in good company because not even Jesus knows. And he says in Matthew 24, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father knows. So if Jesus, the Son, doesn't know when he's coming back exactly, who are we to say, Jesus, you don't know anything, but I know when you're coming back. There are three particular Bible passages that talk in depth. And read these for the week. If you're taking notes, read these for the week because uh, Michael's going to speak about it next week. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 17. The Gospels are all aligned, and this all has a very similar theme. It It goes through the signs. And one in particular, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So what's the question you have to ask yourself then? What, what, what was it like in the days of Noah? What, what happened? You might think, okay, yeah, yeah, people mocked Noah for, for being on the boat. Maybe you've seen Evan Almighty and that's where you get your theology from. Which is okay. But people in Noah's day knew they were spiritually doomed. They knew it and they did not care. They kept on mocking. They kept on scoffing. And this hit me like a ton of bricks this week preparing this. I read back to Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about this. 
And it says that God was so grieved by how man had turned out that he actually regretted creating man. Think about that. I've got three kids. Some things they do, I'm like, man, you know, we shouldn't have had you. No, I don't don't, don't think that. I don't think that. My wife's not here, is she? No, she's gone, cool. But nothing that my kids do would I think, what a, you're, you're a regret. I shouldn't have, we shouldn't have created you. Nothing they do can do that. But God, in all his patience and all his loving kindness, he actually grieved and said, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have made you because you've turned your back on me so much. His masterpiece, his most loved creation. Everything else he created was good. When he created man, it was very good. And now he's saying, you know what, I shouldn't have done it. Just let that seep in for a second. Compare that with the way man has gone today. I think God looks at us and thinks, wow, such godlessness. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have God's mind, but far out, we're close to it, I think. Noah's day, people were eating, drinking, and marrying without purpose, living as they saw fit. Again, draw the parallels to the times we're living in today. And you might think, Luke, that stuff's always been around. And you're right. But the Bible talks about being birth, having birth pains. The signs of the times intensifying. And you know, I've been present in all my kids' births. And you know, I didn't feel them, I've got to say. But the birth pains were, they looked pretty terrible. Women, am I right? It's getting worse. And you know what? As someone who's got a background in sociology and someone who's worked in the field, I can say that these things are getting worse, not by the year, but by the month. As we get further away from God, that must grieve God more and more. So I wholeheartedly believe that we are indeed living in the very last days of the end times. The second truth is that Jesus will return. How do I know? Because he said so. Nothing Jesus has said has not come true. From a personal perspective, anything he's promised me in my life has always come to fruition every single time. So when Jesus says something, I take notice. In several times throughout the Gospels, we read this. The angels in Acts 1, 10, 11, told the disciples that he will come back the same way that he ascended. He will come back. The writer of Hebrews says that he will come back a second time. In Second Thessalonians, Paul tells us that Jesus will be revealed from heaven once again, not as a Lamb of God, but as a judge. Book of Jude, similar message, all different writers. Scripture points to the return of Jesus. If you don't think he's going to return, you might be like in that, um, in, in that movie, Thief of the Night. You might get left behind if that's the way it's going to pan out. Jesus will return. The third truth is the Bible has given us clear signs. Now, again, we're looking more into the signs next week. I don't want to steal Michael's thunder with anything, but I believe that God wanted me to share this one particular passage, and it's in 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. Now, if you're taking notes, if this is the only note you take, mental or otherwise, I want you to take this down. I'm going to go through this pretty much verse by verse. So Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. 
terrible times. He's not saying for man, he's saying for the church. Terrible times for the church. I don't know if you're following the news, but in Canada now, if you, uh, if you teach your kids that anything other than, than, than gender, that having two genders is wrong, you have to be open about you know, gender fluidity. If you're not, you can actually have your kids removed from the home. Did we know that? It's, it's crazy stuff for the church. It's okay for the world, but for the church, it's terrible time. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves. Now, just have the lens. Have a lens of nowadays. Will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to our parents, not our youth, no way, but ungrateful, unholy. Say, lovers of themselves, do what you want. Do what you want. Do what pleases you. It's everywhere. Lovers of money, it drives happiness for so many people. Boastful and proud, to have a sense of immortality, particularly when it comes to opinions of God. The fear of God is gone. It's gone. Disobedient to parents. I just spoke to that before and ungrateful. Now, I, I, um, I was in youth work for many years. And uh, next slide, please. We have a... These are, this is the iPhone 5. came out in 2012. Irrelevant. However, this is the iPhone 5. There's a white and a black one. I worked with a girl whose parents were um, financially not well off at all. Double negative, but you know what I mean. They, they, they weren't affluent by any stretch. Mum actually saved up all her money the whole year for Christmas and said, you know what, I want to just sacrifice all I have and I want to spend $1,000 on an iPhone for my daughter. Did she deserve it? I don't think so, but you know, she wanted to do it because she loved her. So the daughter opened up the present on Christmas morning, and there was an iPhone. She opened it up. It was white. She wanted a black one. And I don't want to tell you what happened next, but basically it ended up with a, a, an ER visit for the mother. You might think, that sounds ridiculous, but it happens all the time. Not just with the iPhone, not just with other things, but in how people live. I want what I want. I don't care what it costs. I want it. And Paul goes on in verse 3. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. So pretty self-explanatory. Without love. What does this mean of things that are good? What is good? Only God is good. What percentage of the world do you think loves God? It's rhetorical. You can answer it if you like, but I don't know. It's pre- I reckon it's pretty low. As I said before, the fear of God is gone. Verse 4, Paul goes on. Treacherous, rash, not Carissa, but rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I won't go into the extremes here and talk about hedonism, which is basically we exist to have self-indulgence and pleasure. But lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. A great example. How many people choose to stay home on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night? They'd rather go out and have fun, and they've pushed God completely out. The stats are alarming. I follow um, 
pretty closely some research called it's called the Barney Group, and they talk about you know the state as a church with millennials, with youth, with children. And what percentage of people in Australia identify as Christian? Do you think? It's 68. What percentage go to church? 12. 12. So, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know what? I don't want that to get in the way of my life. And that's, that's a small extreme, but it's so there. Verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, this verse used to always trip me up. I didn't know what it meant, but now I do. It means to do the Christian thing, come to church, do all the programs, seem like you have it all together, and then you go home and that's it. You're a Christian when you walk in, and you leave that when you walk out. I went to a church in America a few years ago, and on the, the, the door, above the door frame, it said, you are now entering the mission field. I reckon that's cool. It's not, you know what, you've done your Sunday duty. You've done your Christian duty. God's pleased with you. You know, coming to church is good. It's, it's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But what are you doing with it out there? And is God threaded throughout your whole life? And in Matthew 25, uh, Matthew, Jesus speaks about the sheep and the goats. If you're not familiar with it, when Jesus judges, there'll be sheep on one side, which will be the ones that have faithfully followed him, and the goats, those who said they followed him, but they actually didn't indeed. And Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats when he, when he judges. I never, ever want to find myself on the side of the goats. And you know what? There's times when I know, even as a pastor, I know that I start to sway that way. Where church becomes just something that you do, not something that you are. And to me, having a form of godliness but denying its power, that means coming to church, doing all the right things, but not living it out there. That could be confronting or, or harsh, but you know what? If Jesus said it, it's good enough for me. See, verse 5 is saying, in the last days, there'll be many who do this. There'll be many who have the Christian mask on and take it off as soon as they leave. In verse 6, he continues. He says, they are, they are the kind who worm their way into the homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now, this is a broad statement that talks about lies and scammers taking advantage of people. And a lot of them actually exist in the church. I'm not saying everyone here is, is, is that way, but some exist in the church. It's about people who are blinded by their sin, get so bogged down that they believe anything. That person's a Christian. That's okay. I believe him. I believe her. That person's a churchgoer. But Paul's saying in the last days, this is what's going to happen. This evil schemes of man are going to come through. Just look at all the church scandals that have happened. I mean, for example, the Catholic Church. Back in the 60s, they were seen as this really holy and pious and, and good and wholesome place, but now things are coming out. We're saying, you know what? They actually didn't have it all together. They were using their, their power. 
Last days indeed. Verse 7. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we live in the post-Enlightenment era. If you're not sure what the Enlightenment era was, basically it was a time in history where guys like uh, Descartes and Immanuel Kant put together this notion that so that if we can't experience things, it is not real. If you cannot measure something physically, if you can't reach out and touch it, it's not real. And of course, they lumped this idea of God in with this category. And this led to an explosion of ungodliness, agnosticism, atheism. And here it says that man is trying to find answers, trying to always learn about what truth is. But they can't come to a knowledge of truth because there is no truth outside God. So it's futile when you're trying to find truth and you're saying there's no God. You've disqualified yourself from your own goal. This is happening all the time today. Now, I've mentioned my old science teacher in year 10, Wilco. Who remembers Wilco? No one. Wes, one. Cool. So Wilco was my science teacher, and he was a pretty staunch atheist, and he knew I went to church. He knew I was a pastor's kid, so um, what he did was bordering on bullying, but he did it anyway. And he asked me, Luke, I have a beaker here. This isn't a beaker. This is a, a jug. I get that. But pretend this is a beaker. He says, Luke, you're a, you're a Christian, you're a theist. I'm like, yes, Wilco, I am. He said, okay, I'm going to pour a cup of water. And he poured a cup of water. He said, there you go, that's real. I'm like, yeah. He poured it out, hydrochloric acid. He said, done, that's real. I said, okay, that's real. Dangerous, but yeah, that's real. And then he said, Luke, pour me a cup of God. And I thought, well, I'm like, what, do you, what do you mean, cup of God? What? He, and he said, if you cannot pour it into this, or I can't see it or touch it, it is not real. And I said, okay, Wilco, do you believe in love? He said, yes, I believe in love. I have kids. I have a wife. Give me a cup of love. Get out. <laughs> My dad was called. My dad's a pastor. Walking out the gates. My dad gave me a pat on the back. And said, I'm proud of you. You see the problem with this evidence? This is called empirical evidence. If you can touch it, it's not real. I know love is real. I know things like anger are real. You can talk about brain chemistry and stuff, and I can talk about that as well. But the fact is, love, you cannot measure. And as God is love, outside him, there is no truth. So here where it talks about always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Trying to look for scientific understandings of things that cannot be explained. Because again, when you remove God, you remove truth. And this is happening all the time. Go into any schools, any, any public schools, you'll see God is not present at all. Think we're in the last days. I do. And the fourth truth is that we have to get ready. Now, I know I mentioned Keith Green and I mentioned Larry Norman a lot in my sermons because I love him. I hear um, a song called you, uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready and talks about the rapture and talks about how we need to be ready in the end times. 
and I have, I have kids, and my two, my two oldest kids love playing hide-and-seek. And they love saying, ready or not, here I come. And they count to uh, 30 quite loosely. Ready or not, here I come. And half the time I'm not even ready because, you know, I get sidetracked or something. Someone calls me and, Daddy, I found you. Oh, that's right, you are trying to look for me, weren't you? You know what, this is what Jesus is going to say to us as well. In, 20, in Matthew 24, 42 to 44, Jesus says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had, had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. If Jesus came back today, would we be ready? What about in your own circumstance? Would you be ready? Are we alert? Or have we become so desensitized to the issues in the world that we're like, you know what? That's just the way the world is. But no, no way. Jesus is saying this is going to happen in the end times. It's going to intensify and get worse and worse and worse. As a kid, when I heard that Jesus was coming back, I used to raise my eyebrow. Because I heard that he was going to come back as this, this, this judge who was going to be fearful, this judge who was going to come as a roaring lion of Judah. And my idea of Jesus came from my kid's Bible, which was, you know, probably not the most theologically accurate thing in the world, but also some movies. And here we have some depictions of Jesus through movies. Next slide, please. Yep. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus is a good-looking guy. But I see this, and you know what? Jesus was, was placid. He, was a, he, was, he came with, with a message of peace and, and redemption and restoration and did all that. I think what some movies don't quite get right is that he spoke with passion. He spoke with vigor. If the Pharisees saw this kind of guy who was saying, peace be with you, they wouldn't have cared. Oh, yeah, he's just some fanatic. Because he was so passionate about his message. That's why they chose to crucify him. So Jesus, the first time, did come as a lamb of God. But next time he's coming as a roaring lion of Judah. He's not going to look anything like this. He'll come back as the judge. The Bible describes Jesus' second coming as an awesome event, and I mean awesome, like in awe, where every knee will bow. Everyone's going to know straight away what truth is. For some, for most, it'll be too late. First Thessalonians 4 says he will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. He's not going to come peacefully and just, you know, just gather people up to the clouds. You'll know, every eye will see. As I said before, the disciples were expecting his return. They were probably looking up, just waiting. When the two angels said, Jesus is coming back the same way he left. So the disciples had a choice. They could have said, great, we'll wait for him here. We'll just sit down, we'll camp out, get a fire and just wait. Or the other choice 
wants to say, you know what, Jesus is coming back in the meantime. There's a mission field out there. There's a mission field who needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Are we doing that? Are we so engrossed in the end times that we forget that people need to hear, hear about him? It's okay, look, look, look at the times. Do that. Because Jesus says in, Matthew, in Luke 21, 28, Now when these things begin to happen, the end time signs, look up and lift up your heads because your, your redemption draws near. And that's great. But my encouragement is look up, absolutely, but make sure you keep on looking out too. Looking out to see who has not heard the word of Jesus. While you could be waiting for Jesus' second return, there are many people who haven't even heard about his first. What are we doing with that? We could spend so many times looking down on our phones. Look, I'm, I'm that way as well, don't worry. Looking down on our phones, that we sometimes forget that there's more happening outside. The end times are all about Jesus' return. He will come back. I believe that we are in the end times. But let's make sure the first challenge is that we look up and make sure that we look out. Because while we're still here, before Jesus comes, and while you have a heartbeat, that's your purpose for the Great Commission. And that is to see people know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We think that your word is perfect. We thank you, Lord, that your word gives us guidance. And Lord, we pray that even though at times it can be hard to trust you, we know at times it can be really hard to read this stuff and say, God, you've got it under control. Lord, we know how hard the times are at the moment and that they'll probably get worse. But Lord, we thank you that you are God through everything. You are sovereign. That nothing happens without you first saying that it's okay. And that, Father, if we here this morning are personally affected by any of this stuff, Lord, that we've spoken about, signs, Lord, we pray that you give us blessed assurance, one, of our own salvation, but two, that you have all things in the palm of your hand. Lord, it would be so easy just to wait for your return, just to camp ourselves down like the disciples could have easily done and just wait for you. But Father, I pray that you help us get driven to spread the gospel outwards until you do come again. Lord, help us have a lens of eternity, not just with this study, Lord, but through our lives, Lord. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your character. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who redeems and you are a God who restores. Thank you, Lord. Amen.